We're back, the Flat Out RC podcast. My name is Andrew Sill. Before I start, I just want to say a big thank you to all the people that have been sending me messages saying that they're enjoying the podcast. I'm enjoying it as well. I really, really am and uh, enjoy talking to some new people, getting to know some of the the figures in our hobby a bit better through the interviews. So really, really enjoying it and really uh, pleased that you are getting some entertainment value out of it. We're still continuing to try to get them out weekly and so far so good. I'm racking up the interviews as we speak. I've got two more interviews this week, so it's going to be busy times, but as I said, I'm enjoying it, so I'll continue to do it. So we're back flying. Uh, We've got past that first weekend of uh, getting back flying down here uh, where I live, uh, 10 people limit at the field. No bad reports at this stage. I know some people that really slammed the flights out. They, They couldn't wait to get back to the field, so well done to them. I still haven't had a chance to get out. The weather's turned on us. Winter is upon us here in Melbourne, Victoria. Uh, I spent the weekend up in the country and uh, it was chilly. It was very chilly. And it's going to get colder. I hate looking at the weather forecast. You know, when you get the weather forecast and you look at the app and the seven-day forecast to see whether next weekend's going to be okay and what does it say? Showers and wind. So, you know, another weekend that you can't get out there. For those of you that are lucky to get out flying during the week, well done. I, I can't wait for those days until I can fly whenever I want to and whenever I can. But got to make some money. Got to put the kids through school, do all those kind of things. Got to be responsible, apparently. So they'll just have to wait. During the week, I was uh, on a website. Can't remember which website i think it was the model flight website just having a look at what planes were around and came across a new product from seagull models now we all know of seagull models that's that brand of planes coming out of vietnam and generally produce scale planes that's their thing scale planes of all shapes and sizes really and it appears that they're getting into the bigger size aircraft normally they were known for that sort of mid-range to, to smaller size aircraft, but they're really picking up their game and moving into that larger scale size. I think it's in response to the demand, of course, that's out there. And the plane that they've come out with is a, a plane that can be powered from a 35cc petrol motor to a 50cc, and it's called the 102-inch Savage Shock Cub. Now, I did a bit of research on what is... A Savage Shock Cub. Now, Cub gives it away. It is a Cub-style aircraft, but it comes from the manufacturers. Uh, where are they located? They're overseas somewhere. Uh, Zlin in Europe, they are. I think Zlin Aviation. Zlin were known for an aerobatic plane that they once produced, but their repertoire really now looks at bush planes. Uh, they and they all seem to be sort of that high wing cub style plane which personally i do love i do love a bush plane and so this savage shock cub if i have a look at their website now bringing up the page i did have it open earlier uh it's one of their newer newer cubs and uh the savage cub is a result of an intense re-engineering and restyling work of our r&d team so it's the next generation of one of their cub style uh planes um 13 months of preparation. 
that kind of thing. So anyway, it's a short takeoff and a landing plane, bush plane that basically looks like a cub, hence using the cub name. But what's really interesting is where Seagull have taken this. Now, if you listen to last week's podcast, uh, we had Ali Machinchi, which by the way was an excellent podcast. I was really, really happy with it and um, got a lot of positive reviews. Uh, Ali was a great guy. Ali mentioned in that podcast how uh, Horizon Hobby do invest a fair bit into things like cubs because they just sell. You, they've got to make money and they've got to produce what the market wants. So Seagull producing another cub really adds to the mix. But they're, they're going about it a slightly different way. It's not just a traditional cub. But the, the one of the things and the noticeable features of this, this shock cub is the forward-facing slats. So they're really going for that short takeoff and landing prowess trying to work out whether the slats move in and out, which I think, I thought they did. Uh, but anyway, they've got these leading edge slats, which really add to the look of the plane, I must say. It really makes it look like a proper bush plane. So 102 inches is a big wingspan, and, and that's what you normally see, quite a large wingspan on a on a, on a Cub-style plane. But that broad power range, 35 to 50, no doubt we're all going to go 50. You might put a 40 twin, like an RCG or 40 twin or something in it, but normally with a bush plane, you want that power. So personally, I'd be going for the 50cc to give it really good uh, takeoff performance, You know, plenty of, plenty, of, plenty of grunt low down. So this is some of the feature list of this Seagull 102-inch shock cub. Uh, it's a full Bolson ply uh, constructed aircraft. Accurate scale at one appearance, including airfoiled tail services. There you go. So they do do a good job at actually mimicking scale planes, the um, the team out at Seagull. Highly detailed cockpit, which is true. They give you some cockpit detail. I really find that manufacturers now are really going to greater length to make sure they provide a detailed cockpit. So they've done that, and it does look really good. High-quality pre-painted fiberglass cowl. Looks okay. I'll give, it a, give it a seven. Uh, aluminium back plastic hub spinner. It's got that rounded sort of nose cone kind of thing rather than that pointy pointy uh kind of look we see on aerobatic planes um let's get back onto the page i pressed the wrong button and now i can't see it here we go come back what else has it got well it's got includes strong scale aluminium landing gear with oversized 5.5 inch tires it looks like it's sprung it's it they've got it, it mimics the real plane which has got this sort of like lattice style of uh um, wheel leg and they're using 5.5 inch tires now personally if you're going to have a bush plane you've got to have inflatable tires they are not cheap hence not being put in the kits i believe but having and you can buy them just look for for, for some jubo have some that might work and there's another brand which i can't remember that's out of europe that will do them but they do cost a bit but if you're going to have a plane like this you've got to have the balloon tires and you know i've got balloon tires on one of my planes and it's excellent. You just go to a rough field and it doesn't matter. Just go and roll over everything. CNC aluminium machine tail gear strut does look really strong. There's a photo of it. Uh, it is another area where I think people are paying, paying a lot more attention is that tail gear. So good quality tail gear. High quality aura cover covering factory applied by skilled craftsmen. Well, these factories have got some, they're, they're generally females. Like the, the girls do a great job at covering. And sometimes they're just using like the old, you know, household iron. But they do it day in, day out. I asked somebody once, a manufacturer once, about this. They said, look, if you, they said to me, if you're covering planes all day, every day, you're going to get good at it pretty quick. And so they are. Excellent performance and stability. Probably. 
leading edge wing slats and huge flaps and add realistic look and help to achieve incredible style capability. Yeah, hope so. Leading edge, sl- oh, no, I've done that. Airfoil shaped aluminium wing struts. So they've got the aluminium wing struts like I uh, think, which is good. That they actually do help in strengthening the wing. Plug in two piece wing. Good. Includes wing bag set to protect wings while storing and transporting. Yes, another big uh, progression. I reckon all decent sized planes should come with wing bags. It's a bugbear carrying those planes around, the big wings around, without having them in a bag. And you, you spend a fair bit of money, you want to protect them. So well done. Transparent, high quality, 20.28 ounce, 600 mil transparent fuel tank. Interesting. I wonder whether it's a pre-plumbed. Could be. And what else? Free embroidered seagull logo basketball hat and protective mask. You get a protective mask. Gee. This is what happens with the world now. You buy model airplanes and you get a protective mask. Oh, that's just mind-blowing. Anyway, it comes in two schemes. There's a yellow scheme and a, a silver scheme. I do really like the silver scheme. It's a silver and black scheme. I reckon that would be my choice. The yellow one's not bad, but I think the silver and black one looks great. It looks like, of course, it's going to have great style abilities. The, you know, the flaps are really large. I think the ailerons look even smaller than the flaps. But anyway, the flaps is what you need. Uh, nice clear canopy, actually, right over the top of the plane. Right over down the center line of the where the wings sort of you know, fuselage center of the fuselage in between the wings. Uh, so all in all, not too bad. Uh, that would be an awesome plane, I reckon. I, it, I don't know the weight of it. Uh, click here to see. Let's have a look and see if we can work out what the weight is. One of the issues with some of these manufacturers is they just build their planes on the heavy side. You, you, you go to say an aerobatic manufacturer like Extreme Flight, and they'll always give you the lightest plane that's they can possibly give you. Uh, and sometimes the seagulls just get a little bit on the heavier side. Gee, on the Model Flight website, which you can buy it for Model Flight, they're saying 60cc is would be suitable for. Um, let's have a look. It doesn't have the weight. Nobody was mentioning the weight. Don't know. I, look, sorry, can't tell you how much it weighs. Uh, does not say, but anyway... Uh, you'll be able to find it online to see what the specs are. But all in all, I reckon this is going to be a popular model. Now, price here in Australia, we're talking around the $1,000 mark. $1,000 inclusive of taxes, Aussie dollars, you'll get that plane. So it's not a cheap aircraft, but it's big. And big aircrafts cost a lot to make. And But I think if you want something a bit different than the traditional Cub, uh, look at the Seagull Models Shock Cub, the 102 inch, suitable for a 35 to say a 60cc motor up front, 102 inches. Jump onto the Model Flight website, modelflight.com.au, and you can find out more. Well done, Seagull, for bringing us a new model. That's time for my favourite part of the podcast, this is where I get to have a chat with. Someone from the hobby, find out more about them, their aero modeling activities, sometimes industry. And this week's special guest is a name here in Australia that is probably known by many, especially in that aerobatic scene. His name is Steve Richardson. Steve Richardson originally hailed from Melbourne, or sorry, Victoria, moved up to Queensland uh, to work actually in the hobby for Desert Aircraft Australia. So many of us first met Richo, as he's known at uh, Desert Aircraft Australia, 
left that for a new challenge and now runs RC Depot Australia, basically the old JR um, distributor or reseller here in Australia, plus also Richo's Radioactive, who uh, a business where he, he builds planes and assembles planes for customers that can afford to do so because he's always building some wonderful models, large large scale stuff. Um, so Steve Richardson, hope you enjoy it. Over to the interview. Richo, thanks for joining me. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, first question I always ask everybody is how did you get into aero modeling? Oh, this is a long story, actually, but my wife got me into it. It's her fault. Can you just uh, repeat my- that? Can you just repeat that? Sure. Yeah, it's a long story. My wife got me into that. Was, I, uh, I just can't believe that your wife got you into it. <laughs> she did. I know. It's it's kind of weird because she's um, it was my I think it was my thirty ninth birthday, something like that. She um, we were living in country Victoria in Carlsruhe and in Wood End, which is just down the road. A hobby shop opened up, and she said there's a hobby shop there, and she bought me a two channel electric glider, and and a, and a radio set, and said the guy said you need lessons and. I said, bah, I don't need lessons. I know what I'm doing. And sure enough, I crashed that about three times. But uh, before I got lessons and that got me started, and she made me regret it now, though. So what, what year What year are we talking? Uh, that would have been 1997. 1997, okay. Uh, so, yeah. And what was that glider? Can you remember the model? No, I can't remember. It was like Gentle Lady. It wasn't, it wasn't something along those lines. It kind of looked like a Gentle Lady. It had... You know, dihedral at the tips of the wings and stuff like that. It was just a wooden built-up thing, yeah. and I, I had to cover it. And it was uh, it was pretty awful, but it was uh, it was good fun, and it got me started. And I did all kinds of stupid things, like held things together with craft glue rather than proper wood glue and stuff. Yeah, it was a good learning experience. Yeah, I think that's what those gliders are good for because I, I did the same thing. My claim to fame is that um, I was a young kid and I had an Aeroflight Albatross, and uh, I think I was. The glue hadn't dried or something, so I just put pins in it and took it down to go for a fly. <laughs> and then I actually broke the tail off it, um, walking through a little gap into the park where there was a bus stop, and I hit it on the bus stop and broke it and couldn't fly it, so I had to go home and fix it. <laughs> it's, 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 it's pretty tough when you first start. I mean, I think my first flight lasted about 15 seconds. The second one was about 30, and that was lucky. And then the next one was about 20 seconds, and it got, got crumpled up pretty bad each time. And then I bit my pride and went down and, talked to the guy at the hobby shop and got lessons and re- quickly realized that uh, a two-channel electric glider takes too long to charge and you don't get enough time in the air and so consequently I went down and bought everything and got a trainer the whole works and jerks and the guy said to me at the time he said you'll never need another thing and I thought later on what a lie he turned out to be I never stopped buying stuff ever since yeah so yeah, you, you go down to the local flying club Did you join a club yeah. there yeah, I was a member of the Central Highlands Club, the Champs Club up in, uh, in Kyneton. And I uh, still talk to those guys now. It was a great club. Had a terrific time. Learned lots from those guys. It was terrific. It was a really good time. Now, you currently live in Queensland. So yep. you've made the move up there at some point in time. Uh, you know, Was that uh, – what happened when you made that move? Did you continue with the flying up there? or? I did. I mean, primarily I, I, I did all my, a lot of flying in Victoria. and But I, I – through iMac, I did a lot of travelling as well, and I uh, got to go, got to know Ian at, Ian Howard at Desert Aircraft uh, Australia, and we formed a pretty good bond and a relationship. And he said one time, if you want to, if you ever come up here, I'll give you a job. And I was a little, we had a rain business at that time, and I was getting a little bored, and we needed a change, uh, so we decided to move to Queensland. And 
I started work at DA Australia and continued my flying from there, and I've been here ever since. It's uh, so we've been in Queensland for about twelve years now, a bit longer. Yeah. The uh, so you mentioned iMac, so I just want to cover that a bit. So you get this two-channel glider. Obviously, there are a bunch of planes in between. What yeah. led you towards uh, the aerobatic iMac uh, scene? Uh, I got my first big gas aeroplane, and funny enough, stuck a DA one hundred in it, which just seemed. Uh, they were hard to come by at the time. There wasn't a lot of them around and they were very expensive. And I started flying. I did a lot of um, the fun flies, you know, went to Hamilton, Shepparton and all those kind of things. And uh, I ended up getting a, a composite ARF when they first landed in Australia. Ian Howard brought them in. And they were actually fibre classics at the time. But um, I had one of those and we did a few air shows. And I was starting to get a little bored. I, I really thought I was doing okay, but I, I wanted a little bit more discipline in my flying. And Warren Leach from Albury-Wodonga, I heard, was starting a competition uh, along IMAC. And um, so with Glenn Orchard, Steve Wilcox and a few other guys, we decided to have a go at it um, and started from there. And I think that was in 2003. And they asked me to join the, the, the inaugural committee to get things started, to get the association up and running. And the rest was history, basically, from there. And I loved it. It was just a discipline that I really liked. It got me out of my comfort zone. Until that time, I thought I was reasonably good. And then I realised that I couldn't fly a straight line to save myself. And I was very one-sided. All my rolls went one direction. Snaps went one direction. And then when I had to do IMAC, I had to learn to do things opposite ways. And and I really enjoyed it. I relished the challenge. It was great. It was really, really good fun. I'm, well, you know I'm a fan of aerobatics. And I've never competed in an IMAC competition. But I actually have learnt IMAC sequences as a point of practising. And you're right that... Until you you are forced to fly a, a, a defined sequence, you then realise whether you can actually fly straight lines or not. And a good friend of mine, Paul Marlin, early on said, uh, you know, just practice going up and down the strip in straight lines, and that's a great start. When you can do that, everything can flow on from that. And I'm a big believer that IMAC does play that part for anyone that's looking at improving their flying, become more precise. IMAC is a great discipline. Oh, without doubt, I think I would have given up, to be honest. I was getting pretty bored throwing the sticks in the corner and people being wailed by a big aeroplane. You know, you really weren't flying that well, but uh, it looked pretty cool when you threw the sticks in the corner and it come out wherever, wherever it come out. But, uh, you know, that discipline, you know, I started, I did a little bit of pattern as well, but, uh, and, and Paul Marlin was in that and he started with his, uh, he was flying Unlimited and IMAC and, but that, that discipline really kept me in it. Otherwise, I think I would have stopped and it made me a much, much better pilot and, got me out of my comfort zone so much. And so, you know, consequently, you know, sort of from doing fun flies to IMAC, it just made me a much better pilot, more confident. And, uh, yeah, I relished it. I really enjoyed it. And, and I also enjoyed the committee side of it too, to see it develop because seeing young people come through for me was pretty important because I remember when I first started, I mean, I was nearly 40 and I went to the club and I'm looking and where's all the kids? It wasn't any, I was the youngest guy there which I found really bizarre. But um, I love to see the young fellas come through and father-son teams. It's really it's really nice to see. And IMAC did that, which is cool. Yeah, I, I love seeing it as well. When you do see a group of kids together to feel that it is, it, it, you think, oh, there's hope for us yet. We can, we can keep on doing this. <laughs> but the other thing is that you see the kids having so much fun. Uh, and I really think it works well when there's not only one kid, but a few of them with similar age that can bond at the club. I know down here in the Packenham Club, there are, three young guys that get out flying and they egg each other on and that's keeping them motivated. And, and now they're progressing through the ranks. You know, 
they all want to do different things. One like scale. One's actually um, aiming to go to the world champs for scale. I think he's going to get in there. And uh, another guy wants to focus on aerobatics. And so they've all got their own little thing, but that's keeping them motivated and they're really enjoying it, which oh, I don't know. Yeah. These kids nowadays, they should all be <laughs> flying model aeroplanes, I think. <laughs> oh, it's, sorry, it's a great discipline for them. And, and you're right, youth needs youth. You know, you, I always found like if, while they're hanging around a bunch of old blokes and they're learning things, they still need someone their own age to play with and, and enjoy their fun. And uh, that that improves them as well. So you can get a couple of them around together. Yeah, definitely helps. Now, mm. so your IMAC um, career, we'll call it. You, you you were a competitor, then you were on the committee. You end up being the president of um, the Scale Arrows uh, group down here in Australia. Now, it leads me to talking about your involvement with the Tucson Aerobatic Shootout over in the US, which for anyone who doesn't know what it is, it's probably one of the premier aerobatic events that covers sort of IMAC, but also freestyle aerobatics. You've probably been one of the most pivotal parts in getting young Australians over over to Tucson to compete. How did that all come about? Uh, it's Fraser Briggs' fault from New Zealand. I, mean, I went to the TOC in 2002 because I was getting into big airplanes and I, I sort of always, always watched the TAC through magazines and I remember seeing Kiko Sommanzini hovering an airplane. It was on the front cover of uh, Airborne, I think it was, and uh, I thought, man, how can you possibly do that? And I got all excited about it and I went to the the, the TAC Tournament Champions in, Champions in Vegas in 2002 and I met Fraser Briggs there and um, we sort of struck up a friendship and when the TAC ended and the shootout really started to pick up a little bit, I was talking to him one day and he said, do you want to come? We need someone on the team to give me a hand. And I hooked up with that, went with Team New Zealand for two years in a row. And then I went with, sort of, I got pretty excited about it, but I thought it was such a great competition. Um, and I sort of brought it back a lot of information for people. We should do this. And we sort of, we did get an Australian team up and going which uh, Chris Brislin and a few other guys, Troy Broderick, uh, Mick Dakers and a few others all went over. And just that involvement with them, uh, it was so good to see that we could be com- competitive on a worldwide level. And it just sort of confirmed that with what we were doing within Australia with IMAC was correct. It was, uh, we could we could give people an avenue to hone their skills, go overseas on a, on a world basis and be competitive, which I thought was really important. And uh, when... You get kids like, um, you know, like Aaron Gall and uh, Chris Brislin, you know, for them to be able to go there and shine, which is fantastic. And I can't, you know, used to make my heart beat a little harder just watching those kids do what they did. And we had a little bit to do with that, which was really nice. I think it also helps uh, when the, you know, we get influenced by our surroundings. And here in Mm. Australia, yes, we are an island. We're a very big island at that. But we get influenced by what we see at the flying field. And I think sometimes going offshore, attending a big event can really motivate the pilots to see what else is out there and what level other people are at. And yes, we've got the internet nowadays that we can watch YouTube videos, but there's nothing like experiencing it firsthand. Do you think that that uh, has helped a lot of the pilots that you took over there in seeing what the other, you know, where the rest of the rest of the world is at? Oh, absolutely. I mean, because at that time, we all, we always thought that the Americans were the best. They did everything the best, and we we were a backwater just trying to learn what we're doing. But when we, when you actually get them there, they realise they're not that they're not that far behind. In some cases, they're in front, 
And, you know, I, I remember the first time I went, when I went to the TAC, first time I went to America, I thought these guys are going to be the best builders in the planet. And I looked in an aeroplane, I think it was Jason Shulman's, and he'll probably poke me in the ribs for this, but it was the messiest thing I've ever seen. It was like someone threw a can of spaghetti in there. It was all over the place. And I remember walking around the TAC, there was several aeroplanes that were quite nice. The rest were quite shabby internally, and I was quite surprised by that, that uh, their finishing off skills weren't that good. But also with the flying, you know, uh, when all of a sudden you take a kid like Chris Brislin over there, and he realises that I'm not a, a big fish in a little pond. I am competitive in a world scale. It's fantastic. You know, and when he did so well uh, the first time we took him and he won Unlimited, uh, and don't get me wrong, Unlimited in the USA is very competitive. There's a lot of really good pilots. The depth there is enormous. Uh, when he came home, it was vindication for a lot of people uh, and for him particularly because, you know, a lot of people used to think he was getting overscored because he was just a kid. But... You know he was he was brilliant, and uh, he proved it when he went there. And I, you know, it was it was a great place to do it. And uh, you know, I was fortunate enough to see it and help him. And and later on, I ended up running the t- uh, the shootout. I did it for three years as a CD, uh, which is also interesting. What I quite enjoyed doing that as well. Oh, that's interesting. How did you get into that role? Because someone from Australia managing an event over in the US, oh, I've never heard of that happening. How did that come about? from your involvement yeah, was, turning up? or Yeah, pretty much because I was there all the time and I, I was working at Desert Aircraft Australia and uh, Dave Johnson, the owner of Desert Aircraft uh, in Tucson, he's just the world's nicest guy, you know. He's just a beautiful human being. And uh, Mike Massellan had been running for quite a few years and I'd helped him with some sequences and stuff and a little bit of background, giving him a hand when I was there. Uh, and Mike had enough. He, he, he'd moved to Spain to do some uh, university work and... They were looking for a CD, and Dave said to me, do you want to have a go at it? And I thought, yeah, I'll have a crack. You know, the man's asked me to do it, and I went over there, and I thought I'd bitten off more than I could chew, but it was a lot of work, but I loved it. And I think the hardest thing for the Americans was getting used to my accent, but it was uh, it was great. I learned a lot from doing it, and, um, you know, I, I'm very proud of the time that I spent there doing it. And having, I did it for three years, and... Um, I only stepped down after I left the Australia, simply because when starting my own business, I just didn't have the time. Otherwise, I'd still be there. But I went last year to give my hand again. Kevin Garner was doing a great job, and uh, it was awesome. Yeah, just to finish off on the Tucson side of things, so you've been to Tucson a lot and seen a lot of pilots. Have you got a favourite pilot that you love watching when you're at Tucson? Oh, yeah, they're all pretty good, to be honest. Um, I used to... The top five, like guys like Gernot Brockman and that, he's just awesome and consistently good all the time. Uh, I used to love watching Simon Zini too. When, they, when you think of those guys, because uh, they, they're totally professional. They, they do it for a living. And um, they don't muck around. They're not sitting there drinking beers. They do occasionally, but, you know, they they take it all very seriously. So, you know, Gernot was one of my favourites, I think, to watch Gernot fly. Uh, was very, very good. And obviously Chris Brislin had a... a um, I still rate him as one of the best pilots I've ever seen. And his freestyle in 09 was a winner. Unfortunately, we hit the ground in the in the second round. Uh, in the last round, sorry, he lost by 1.6 points to, to Gurnow. You know, it's, uh, that was, you know, unfinished business. We really wanted to go back, but life takes over, unfortunately. And Chris is doing much better things. But, you know, yeah, watching those guys fly and the dedication to it, you know, particularly with Chris, because I spent so much time with him. He was, I've never seen someone so dedicated. Uh, and put so much effort in it. And I guess it was lucky because he had 
parental support and uh, he was at school at the time, so he had plenty of time, really. Yeah, the interesting thing is um, hanging around with some of those guys that have competed at the top level, they get often get asked, you know, what's the tip? What's the secret, you know? <laughs> and they all say the same thing, which is just time on the sticks. Now, Absolutely. Chris mm. Brislin was an amazing pilot. Uh, he, How much was, was he practising in the height of his competitive career? Oh, man, he'd wear gimbals out. Yeah, you know, on his, just because he, when he's not actually flying a real thing, he was actually on. Yeah, he was in his bedroom on the on the simulator. But you know, two thousand and nine, when I went with him, which was his last one, he we would have been out every weekend uh, for I reckon eight months prior to that. We built new aeroplanes for it. We were going through a new routine, and we scrutinised. But he, we were out almost every weekend. He burning gas. It was um, like I said to him at the, after the event. Uh, he got fourth in Invitational and second in Freestyle. It's like, man, it doesn't get much better than this. When else will you ever have the time to be able to do this? You know, because he was he was getting into his last year of school. As much as, much as you had to put a lot of effort into that because he was no great student as well. But um, he put a lot of time and he was really methodical too. His thought processes about setting his, his transmitter up to get his plane to work and uh, was exceptional. Um, he was really good to work with. I enjoyed it. Well, now he's gone on, I think, to become a, a commercial pilot, hasn't he? Yeah, yep. He's uh, wearing the epaulettes and the hat and going around kicking the tyres on the outside and flying people around the countryside. And um, Well done to him. He, he, but he always achieves whatever he sets his mind to. He was just one of those achievers. Yeah. He, he was F3A Masters at 13. I mean, I was still delivering papers at 13. That's true. Uh, yeah. I was dribbling, I think, still when I was 13. <laughs> now, okay, let's... Let's wind back a bit. So I want to talk a bit about your industry involvement because uh, you, you've mentioned you worked at DA Australia and that took you from Victoria up to Queensland. Um, so Ian Howard at Desert Aircraft Australia said you've you got a job if you come up here. You've gone up there. And how long did you did you hang around DA for? Uh, I was there for almost 10 years. Um, I, I had a, a small hiatus near the end for I went off to, to do something else, but I'd come back again for another 18-month period. But a uh, great place to work. You're good people. Um, it's just hard to keep your motivation up at times. But, you know, the DA is, I mean, I've got it tattooed on my heart. They're just good people. And that goes all the way back to Tucson. But Ian Howard was also one of the, you know, one of the best guys you could talk to about big aeroplanes. He, whenever I needed information, he was always there. And he was smart intuitive he knew what he was talking about which you know when i first started you go down your local hobby store and i need a uh, a control horn for 100 cc and they show you this plastic jubro thing and you go no man i can't use that whereas ian would always give me the right information even if he didn't sell it he'd point me in the right direction so we struck this affiliation up you know and i leaned on him quite a lot as i was learning and uh, he was very helpful and he still is he's he's one of the smartest models i've ever met uh he's very clever but Nobody had known it. I mean, not many people knew that DA ignitions were made in Australia and it's designed by Ian and manufactured by him. And that's just a quite un- untold story, really. But, well, um, Richo, but- I told the story in Flat Out RC magazine, I think in the last edition. <laughs> yeah, you did. But, I, actually, I actually shot a video up there with Ian yeah. talking about the manufacturing of the ignitions and uh, I lost all the data. It was all corrupted and I couldn't, I couldn't release the video. I was just kicking myself that I lost it all because it's such a good story. But fortunately, yeah. I managed to recover some photos, which then became the basis of the article and I already you know, sort of knew what to say because I'd already spoken to Ian about it. But that's true. I, like, I've, I've had a few dealings with Ian and, and he's excellent. And I think when you talk about knowledge and you look at the DA business, 
everything that they sell is quality stuff. They've, they've, you know, it's almost like they've learned through experience and now they're passing that on by offering the best products available. Would you say mm. that oh, I've got this belief and I'm just wondering whether you agree with me or not. When it comes to people that fly aerobatics at a, mm. at a giant scale level and whether it's iMac freestyle or whatever, their planes are subjected to a lot of forces, you could say, more so mm. than most other aircraft. Would you say as a result of that, that if you want to build, if you want to know how to put together a model that's going to last, it's going to be able to withstand a bit of rough and tumble. Do you think the aerobatics guys that are building those giant scale planes have sort of got a bit more bit more knowledge than the average uh, pilot when it comes to that kind of thing? Oh, I believe so. I mean, I, I, iMac, um, you invest a lot of money into your aircraft. And when you get in a three meter, 150cc or even 100cc, which, which is what I started off my gas career with was 100cc because 50s just weren't available. And... Um, you know, you don't want to lose that because you put a lot of money. And my first 2.6 metre must have cost me nearly 13K, you know, and that time was kind of stupid money. But you needed three servos and a rudder and multiples everywhere. And, uh, you know, putting a $2 lead in a, and a $13,000 plane is just stupid. And, you, you know, you, you seek out a lot of help and those guys have had experience. And um, and that's where it was a godsend with, with Ian, et cetera. I mean, he had that experience and he no, no, don't use this. This is where you have problems. And it made a lot of sense to me. So yeah, and I'm a firm believer that, you know, with competition, aerobatics, freestyle, IMAC, whatever it is, it trickles down. People start, people notice. Because once you start to get into it, you really want to get more knowledge and information. Because once you've lost an aeroplane through whatever problem, uh, you really want to do it again. And uh, you usually find that the guys who, who compete uh, have been through those issues and usually got, got them resolved. Well, that has led, led, led you after the DA experience. Mm-hmm. You've now gone into your own business, RC Depot Australia, and you've almost continued with your, your philosophy of good gear because you don't sell any rubbish, do you? No, look, at DA was the same. I mean, it was it was so easy to work there because everything you sold was quality. And if it didn't work, we didn't use it. And I'm the same. I can't sell things I don't believe in. Um, it's... It's imp- from, I can't do it. I can't sell you a servo that's just rubbish, and I know it's rubbish. It's if you can't back the product up, don't sell it. And if it doesn't work, don't sell it. And so, you know, I mean, the the JR thing come back to come to me through uh, my exposure to people overseas with Tomahisa and Mooney uh, from JR at the time, and their product's great. Um, and I'm the same. I mean, so when I left the A and started went out went out on my own. That was just building aircraft, and that lasted three and a half years. And here I'm still doing it. But the RC Depot thing got me really excited when JR went uh, into liquidation. Um, I think it was three and a half, four years ago. It everyone thought it was over, but uh, to see it reemerge again and become strong is fantastic. And with uh, better management, because of Tomahisa, he bought uh, he bought all the rights to the place, and so it's basically the same, the same product just better people driving it and refining the product a bit better, which is, is nice to see. Yeah. So RC Depot Australia is the official distributor for JR uh, gear, you know, transmitters, servos, receivers, etc. cetera. Uh, and yes, they are top quality. Like JR was always known as a top quality um, sort of provider of equipment. Since mm. the, the rebirth of JR through his D-Force, D-Force owner, don't, don't they? Is that the, the official name behind JR now? Yeah, oh, no, well, there's a bit of a story to that because uh, when 
it went into liquidation, but the only thing of any value was the stock and the name. Uh, Tomohisa from Kanishi Moeki Company, who, which is RC Depot in Japan, he bought all the products, rehired all the, uh, all the technicians who wanted to come across, start, restarted the factory in Malaysia, which he originally started for JR, and got all that fired up again. Now, when it come to getting the name, he was told by the, uh, the liquidation attorney that you can't use the name unless you buy it. And they wanted some ridiculous amount of money for it, which he didn't pay. And that's where the D-Force Aviation thing come in. That's why you see it was JR, DFA. Um, so, but eventually they couldn't sell the name and they give it to him at a reasonable price that he bought. And now you'll see a lot more product will be G- definitely JR Propo. It won't have the hyphenated name, but um, that's how that came about. Okay. I didn't know that. That's good. Thanks for clarifying. Uh, no problem. So... What is happening now with the JR brand as far as products? You, you mentioned that they've employed the old staff. What's happening from a development perspective with, with new gear? Are they coming out with new gear? Because initially what they did was continue manufacturing some of the original designs, which there was nothing wrong with them, but are they doing any development work and new new products coming out? Yeah, all that's underway. Um Initially, it was just getting themselves established, getting the factory up and running again and getting product back out there. That was a major driver. And that took a, a little bit of time, uh, get himself established back in America and everywhere else in the world where they could. There's new things on the horizon. They're developing uh, new, new radios now. But essentially what we have now is still uh, you know, the older radios with slightly different names. But uh, there is new stuff um, new transmitters coming out. Uh, hopefully by the end of the year, they'll have a flagship model, which, because uh, the, the 28X never got replaced, basically, when JR went broke and in the liquidation, um, all the moulds and dies for that were destroyed. And so it never got reborn again. Uh, so they're developing a brand new flagship, which will be coming out hopefully by the end of the year. Um, so there's always something in development. Just uh, getting themselves established was the biggest thing and getting the receivers, getting quality back in the receivers. And they've done a lot of development on servos, particularly. Uh, their 8911, their full, met, their full alloy cases, the gear train sets, getting all those organ- um, up and running and getting those uh, to a quality that we're happy with. It's, it's been a bit of a mission. So, but... Uh, at the moment, their servo range has been developed, and now they're sort of starting to look at a few other transmitter uh, transmitter range, a few changes in that. But you won't see a, a wholesale change; it'd just be a, a uh, an evolution rather than a revolution. Yeah, yeah okay, well, it, it works, so you know, no need to totally fix it. The um, so <laughs> so RC Depot Australia, you're selling, of course, all the JR gear in servos, receivers, transmitters, and that kind of stuff. What other gear are you offering through that through that business? Uh, well, there's obviously the telemetry stuff, but for my stuff, I'm bringing in flight composite tech, uh, which is just is stuff for jets, uh, tank fittings, etc., um, and some of the Jubro stuff, etc. From there, but mostly I'm concentrating on the, the JR Propo stuff. Anything they do, I want to do. Um, I'm doing that direct to the public, particularly. I haven't gone through shops because you can't build enough profit margin in it um, for dealers and for, for for me to bring it in, and because otherwise you end up ridiculously expensive and um, you know, the world's a small place now. So our sales formula pretty much is sell direct to the public. Uh, and, you know, while I've got a few retailers who do buy from me, they're very few and far between. And like I said, there's just not a margin in to build it. The world's a very small place now. And all the hobbies, and, uh, the hobbies getting smaller as well. I think, I think that's the way of the future, really. I, I think that's actually, I've been saying that for years. 
not just in aero modeling and some of the other work that I do through my marketing uh, business, that the role of the middleman is going to go out when margins are squashed. And we know that the market has declined, the aero modeling market has declined, which means there's less money going around, which means you want to maintain your margin. So cutting out any middlemen in the whole process is probably a good way to go. And I think going direct, I don't think anybody in Australia would have an issue with that. It's a small place, as you said. And, uh, that direct marketing is the only way to go. You can keep your prices down. You can give better support and backup. Uh, it's taken a little longer to get back into the marketplace. But for me, it's the, the, the mum and dad stores, unless they're actually bringing in their own product, they don't have a lot of a future, to be honest, in my opinion. And you find, you know, even in my time, which is pretty small, I mean, uh, DA was probably is one of the, the few that really concentrated on one area, which is big gas aeroplanes, and they excelled at it. Uh, with a hobby store now, trying to cover all bases, it's very, very difficult. And um, trying to make a living, it's near impossible. Well, that's why I think we see a lot of them are diversifying to other areas, such as fishing gear or all sorts of things, just to to try yeah, to make ends yes. meet. So, and I just think yep. it's just a sheer reality of the situation. It's interesting to actually see some of the the more generic hobby stores uh, moving into trains and plastic kits. There's been a resurgence in plastic kits, yes, and yes. and even train train sets and things like that. But uh, to places like RC Depot Australia, you know, if, if anyone rings you up, you know that you're getting good advice from a true aero model that's been there and done that. And I find that some of the, the local hobby stores will have staff there that might really be great with um, RC cars. But when you ask them a question about, you know, what prop size should I use for my 30cc aerobatic <laughs> plane, they'll sit there and give you an APC plastic prop that's probably going to break and all this kind of stuff. It's, it's Everyone has said over many years, oh, you need to support your local hobby store. But my attitude's always been, yeah, by all means, support them as long as they're doing the right thing by you. I'm not just going to blindly walk in there and buy stuff no. just because you happen to be around the corner. But it is disappointing, I, th- I think, for a lot of modelers that you know, if we need to go and buy a glow plug, or we need to go and buy some nitro fuel, or we need to go and buy a quick battery to go for a fly in the afternoon. There's nothing there, and we've got to wait and buy online. But look, yeah. it's all just a better matter of time management. Just think ahead and purchase, and it'll come. I think so. I think most people are sort of getting involved around that. And I think a lot of a lot of guys who got into bigger stuff or stuff that's a little unique, they got tired of going to hobby shops and, you know, the guy trying to sell them what he's got rather than what you need. Um, you know, not always the right information. I think, you know, that information source, which I think whereas places like Desert Aircraft and you know, DL engines in, in, uh, in Western Australia, They've got good information. They'll give you a good product and good backup, and that's vital, I think. You know, for me, when I first started, I've always used DA engines. And I've never missed a competition because I couldn't get a part or I couldn't get any backup support. And if I had an issue, they were always there to give me a hand. And that that's vital. And that gets the same for me with RC Depot. Every time I sell a transmitter to a guy, and you know, don't get me wrong, some of these old guys – don't like reading manuals, neither do some of the young people. And manuals are most a waste of time. But uh, when they have an issue or they can't sort something out, they ring me up and they get instantaneous help. Um, yeah, that's important to me is they get that kind of backup support. I think what ends up happening as well is that those that are really avid aero modelers that buy, you know, spend a bit more money on a, a better quality gear, mm. they end up gravitating towards these kind of businesses that DA has been able to 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 maintain its its hold in the market as a result of selling quality gear and dealing with the quality customers and that's what they appreciate now i want to 
move on to another section of your uh, hobby industry life, and that is you've worked as a professional builder. Now, uh, if you, anybody listening, if you want to keep a track of some of Richo's models, I, I love seeing your Facebook page. Well, is it just under your name that you're posting all your stuff? Or no? It's Richo's Radioactive RC. It's underneath that. Richo's Radioactive RC on Facebook. You get on that and you, and you can see projects that Richo's been working on. And they're all just, they make you want, you see these photos and you want to go and buy the plane. Now, I can't build like you, but that, where did this, this, this uh, love of building first start? Was it back to your two channel glider days or where, well, how did that get going? It probably started in my motorcycle days. I used to race motorcycles when I was younger and um, ha- not having uh, enough money to get someone to fix it, I had to fix it myself. And I sort of learned a discipline to try and be tidy and methodical about when you're doing something. And, uh, you know, it was inter- when I first got into model aircraft, it's like everyone stuffed everything in the fuselage and put a piece of foam over it and a bit of tape and away they went. And for me, I didn't like that. I liked, I used to build compartments to put them in and things like that. And it just sort of, it, it's just part of me, I think, from my early motorcycle days. And uh, I'm mechanically minded. And I, like I said, when I went to the TAC for the first time, I was not appalled, but I was stunned about how much better I thought I could put an aircraft together than some of these other guys. But um, uh, yeah, it's just you know being being patient, and I just like to look at the finish of the model internally as well. And to me, if it looks simple, you've done a good job. Uh, if it looks messy, well, it's going to fly messy pretty much a lot of the time too. Well, it's almost you've built up this brand around your building that I, I've got a friend of mine that has a compaf edge that I think you built. It may have been owned by somebody else in between, but he quite proudly says, Richo built it. You know, it's like it's Richo <laughs> built. Uh, and that means, that stands for its quality. So did, when it came to building these larger scale planes, where were you getting your information from? Was it people like Ian Howard that were guiding you as to what gear to put in those planes or, or you know, talking to other people, of course, always helps. But what was your story around that, deciding what to put in, where to put it? Uh, yeah, it was an interesting story. I mean, when I first bought my my, my first big aircraft, which was a 97-inch Hangar 9 Extra 330, uh, come from Hobby Headquarters at the time, and I paid a lot of money for a, a, a an ARF, basically, and it's supposed to have a, a GT80, I think it was supposed to get in it. And I was waxing and waning about what I was going to do. And a friend of mine had a DA-100 already in a Sukhoi. And um, we were all sitting around having a beer looking at it. And he said, if you don't buy a DA, you're a dickhead. And I thought, geez, man. I said, look, at that time, it was $2,400. And I could have bought a, a Zanawa for, I think it was $800. And uh, anyway, I bit the bullet and bought the DA. And it was the best thing I ever did. Because uh, it never broke down. It went like a rocket. It was always reliable. It made that process for my first plane so much easier. But the relationship I'd formed with Ian at that time, he was just a, a fountain of knowledge because he'd done it all before and pointed me in the right direction. And, and when it comes to setting aircraft up, I've learned so much from other people. And, you know, I, I made all the mistakes like everyone else. And, um, yeah, you learn how to how to get around those and you use your own brain about doing setups, et cetera, et cetera. But, um, you know, pretty much finding that right person to talk to. For me, that was Ian pretty much. He was the one with all the experience and uh, the rest we kind of learn along the way. But I always had him to fall back on. I think you've actually taken it further in that I, some of those old videos that you shot at DA, some of those sort of instructional videos, <laughs> they are just phenomenal. Like they just stand the test of time. And again, I, I, I told you off air how you're one of those guys that when – 
you talk, I just listen, and I know that you're right. And so I think you've been very good at communicating how to do things as well in those videos that were excellent, excellent sort of things. I wish you did more of them. That'd be great. I could learn some more. Uh, but tell me. Yeah, I'm keen to, keen, keen to do some more when I get some time. Yeah. Oh, no, it's always about time, isn't it? I yeah. think these videos just happen, but you, you know, you've got to prepare and then you've got to shoot it and you've got to edit it and all that kind of stuff. But you are providing a building service and 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 uh, let's just say, I don't think you've been putting together, you know, 46 size glow engine trainers. Generally, they've been more substantial models, you know, worth a fair bit of money. Mm. What um, what kind of planes have you been building? Uh, mostly all composite stuff and usually all high-end stuff. And I, I started building jets, which I hadn't done until after I'd left the and started out on my own. And I really enjoyed that. It was just something different. And um, putting a turbine together and learning something new was fantastic. I really enjoyed it. So, I've, I mean, I've done some some seriously big stuff, um, you know, like $35,000 uh, turnkey things in, in the end, uh, which is – a pretty small selection of the market, but again, it's, it's like a lot of things here that you're all cashed up, you've got no time, or you've got plenty of time and no cash. You never got both at the same time. And a lot of these people can build, but in the end, they haven't got the time, or they just lack the experience, or they sometimes they're a little nervous about doing it, and they seek me out to do it. And I guess when you're talking about a thirty thousand dollar jet, you really want to give yourself the best chance about getting the thing put together right. Uh, and avoiding any technical errors, I guess. Um, so, you know, and, but I've done a lot of piston-driven iMac aircraft, uh, but the turbines is the one thing I've been learning the wars lately. I'm really enjoying. Yeah, I saw you at the Wang Jets last year, and no <clears> doubt you'll probably be there again, I'd say, in October if it's going to run. I think you're talking about October sometime. Uh, yeah. You've flown jets now? You've got your own turbine or not? Yeah, yeah, I have. I've, uh, I've got a Krilavanti at the moment and a Viper jet which I'm putting together for myself, um, which is kind of interesting. I don't own a lot of planes, to be honest. It's really funny. I get most of my enjoyment building other people's aeroplanes, and uh, I don't have a whole bunch of my own. I haven't got an iMac model at all at the moment. I sold it, but um, I, I'm keen to do that. I don't necessarily need a lot of models. I just uh, I like a couple of quality ones. But the, the turbine i got at the moment, I really enjoy flying when I get time to get it out. And it's kind of nice to go to the, those jet events, which I haven't done before. They're a bit more relaxed than an iMac event. That's interesting you say that because you know I've got a, I'm trying to finish this turbine off, and everyone says why did you buy a turbine? I said because I want to go to the turbine events. I want to go to the jet events. It's almost <laughs> like that model. I said to a friend today that my jet is just a model for going to events with. I'm not going to fly it every weekend at the local club. You know, most of the clubs, a lot of clubs don't allow you to fly turbines down here, but it's my. I know I want to go to Mangalore Airport and fly at the airport and Wangaratta Airport and. And just be part of of that event. Um, mm. So, and it's just another experience. Okay, I do like flying aerobatic, so I bought a Viper jet so I can have something a bit aerobatic and put on a bit of a show kind of thing as best as I can. But um, yeah, it's interesting to say that that you know you just want to be part of that part of that thing. I, I keep on pinching myself because I, I, often I do things just to be part of something. I don't know why, but anyway. Yeah, I enjoy I'm it. the same. I mean, I raced bikes for a lot of years, but I. I'd like, if you want to get better at things, go and get involved in it. And, you know, it, I can't tell you how many people I've talked to who won't fly at a fun fly or a big, an, an event like that. And it's fear that gets them, unfortunately. And if it makes you too nervous, don't do it. But, yeah, if you want to go and have a good time, go and do an event. Do a, do a, you know, do a jet event. Do an iMac event. Go and do a fun fly. Go to Shepparton, you know, 
experience it and you're all the better for it, I think. I, yeah. I agree. I'm a massive, and I keep on writing about this, I love events because mm. I just love everything that they stand for. It's a social event. You get to catch up with people. And I have learned so much from going to events and just seeing what is else is out there. When I'm, I'm a member of one club and one of my beefs is that the, the members are too insular. They can't see beyond a, an ultra stick kind of playing. There's, there's a lot more to yeah. it. And they, they're not encouraged to go out into the, the world and see what else is out there. But you turn up to an event like the Shepherd and Mammoth event, it just blows your mind. The only problem is, though, is you go to an event like that, you see all these wonderful planes, the next minute you want to go and buy one. So then you realise how much you're in for and that puts you off. But I can't wait to go to Shepherd. Oh, fingers crossed it's going to be on this year, but I can't wait to go to Shepherd and actually fly there for the first time because I've always been there filming and doing that kind of thing. But I've got got big planes ready to go for it. That I, and I said, oh, taking that to Shepherd. And, so yeah. I agree. Yeah. It's a great way to go. Find a local event and just turn up. And oh, you know just funny? go and do it. Yeah. You know how um, you said that often people are quite nervous to fly at events? Mm. When you go to a flying event, are you sitting there watching everybody fly and in, in, in taking notes on how they fly? Uh, a little bit. I don't do it like I used to. Before, it used to be a nervous thing for me. Now, as a, as, through my iMac days, I'm more of a judge. You know, I'm judging at that point where I wasn't quite on point and all that kind of stuff. Just just uh, being a bit of a crit- critique, not not anything else. But uh, And I'm not sort of basing how good they are in comparison to me. But, uh, you know, pretty much in the early days, I used to, when I used to go to fun flies, I'd be watching, oh, that guy's really good. He's way better than me. I'm going to make a, a putz out of myself. And, you know, once you get – you tell yourself, you're as good as everybody else. You pull your pants on like the rest of them, one leg at a time. Just go out and fly your plane and enjoy yourself. And when I could stop – Thinking about all that other crap, I had a great time. It was fantastic. And and we, we used to go to down a, uh, Ararat to fly at Moss Hurd's place, you know, Moss yeah. uh, before he died. Great and fly. we used to, a bunch of people would turn up and that atmosphere was like a fun fly anyway. So we got to exposure to a lot of that stuff and just getting out outside your own club and not being a, a big fish in, in a small pond. Uh, it's it's good for you. It's fantastic. And yeah. not to mention the friendships. Like how many friends have you made through the hobby? Oh man, yeah. incredible! I mean, I've been, I've been to India, New Zealand, America, uh, uh, Thailand. I've been all over the place, all because of modelling. And you know, the, the India trip was amazing. Some, I couldn't believe someone seen one of their planes on DA at DA the 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 two hundred um, SU thirty one Sukhoi that I built with the flames on it. And he said, "I want it," and he bought it. And then he said, "But you're going to come over and put it together." Serious. And yeah, sure enough, he paid for me to go to India. And what a great friendship! We've I've been over there three times since then, and yeah. things like that, you know, never happened to me before until you know, era modeling, particularly. And you know, being part of the world, the world championships, the first IMAC world championships, being part of the committee and being operational manager for that, it was fantastic. You know, being on the international sequence committee, I just like being involved. And if you take up those opportunities, lots of things happen to. And for me, it all happened when I went to the TOC and decided to get involved in it. It was just fantastic. That's, yeah. that's funny, isn't it? You get involved, yeah. you do something which leads to something else, which leads to something else, which leads to something else, and before you know it, you've done a lot. And that's, I think, to me, that's what I strive for. That I can look back on my life and go, "Gee, I've, I've achieved a lot of things." But you know mm. what? I've got, to, I've got to be honest. You're talking about motorbikes. Yep, I just bought a motorbike. Yeah. I just bought yeah, a dirt bike. Everyone <laughs> thinks I've got a, having a midlife crisis, and I said no. I've been having a midlife crisis since I was eight because I've, I've had so many different things. But th- I always say there's something about we aero modelers. We all think alike. We're tinkerers. You're talking about how 
you're into motorbike racing when you were younger and tinkering with the engines, things like that. Well, aero modeling is still tinkering in a different format. And that's why a lot of aero modelers love cars, hot rods, bikes, boats, fishing, you know, uh, mountain biking, all, all sorts of different things. There's yeah. a, we're, 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 we just can't sit still, can we, most of us? No, I mean, I've still got a, I've just bought a motorbike recently again, too. I've been off them for quite a long time, but I've always been into push bikes, mountain bikes. Uh, there's always been something. And, you know, with aircraft, I always enjoyed the technical aspect of it about where the CG should be, how it should work, you know, how it feels. And, you, and as you improve, your demand of the aircraft change a bit, too. And, I mean, I learned heaps. And, you know, I've met so many cool people. I've been so fortunate. And, you know, our friend Edo, I mean, I, he was just another one of life's beautiful gentlemen. And, yeah. you know, there's been so many cool people. And one day I'll sit you down and tell the story about how Edo tried to put a fire out in Catherine. <laughs> yeah. we'll, we'll, have, we'll have a beer over that. That was quite funny. Yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> well, I think I'm, I'm thinking about putting a bit of a tribute uh, episode of this podcast together for Edo. And we might have to grab you online to tell us your story so we can have, have something. <laughs> but um, there's lots of stories about the great man, Edo Segev. And he, he was he was a JR sponsored pilot. He actually worked closely with JR on one particular model, which we nicknamed the Edo model. I can't remember the exact name. It was like an eight nine one one, but it it was a slightly different variation of number. And he yeah. had um, he was testing servos for them back when he lived in Israel for you know around uh, EXFC time and that kind of thing. And one of his problems was he was wearing out servos uh, back then. <laughs> And he he gave them some suggestions on what they can do, and and the server was great. And and I think uh, our friend Chris Rutter, the old Rutnut, he's yep. got we call it the Segev. He's got the, one of Edo's old Krills, and that's got the the Edo Segev servos in it. And they're they're, they're awesome servos. So JR servos available to RC Depot Australia. Before I forget, what's your web address? Uh, rcdepot.com.au. Okay, that's a, that's a good name. That's nice and easy, rcdepot.com.au. Take a look, lots of JR stuff. Now, uh, you've been involved in the hobby for quite some time. You said around 1997 or so on. So you've seen a lot of changes. What do you think we've lost and what do you think we've gained over that period of time? Uh, I've definitely lost skills. Building skills have gone out the window. Uh, people just don't have them or have the time for them. And a lot of that's because of ARFs, et cetera. But... ARFs introduced a lot of people into era modeling as well. So it's a, a double-edged sword. What, what we kind of lost, we gained on the other side. So I, for me, building skills have gone, disappeared. A lot of people put an aeroplane together and they say, I built that plane. Well, no, you didn't. You, you kind of assembled it more than anything else. And, and, I, and I'm the same. I mean, most of what I'm doing is assembly work with a little bit of re-engineering here and there. But um, a lot of those people who I see are just too scared to... Uh, make a cut into somewhere in case they bugger it up. But the reality is the difference between a good builder and a bad builder is a good builder knows how to cover up his mistakes because he's done it before. But uh, I think the ARF thing introduced so many people to our hobby and also yeah, more more equipment, more quality equipment. Um, I remember when DLE come on, everyone going, oh, it's going to be Chinese crap. I won't be. But it got a lot of people into the hobby. Uh, got a lot more people flying big gas aeroplanes, which was good. So, and and, and now they, they're well supported and backed up with people, with uh, Jackie and Scott and WA, etc. So, uh, yeah, it's it's there's been a lot of changes. There's been a lot of changes, um, and particularly in equipment. Equipment's got better by a long way. Uh, I remember buying my first uh, electronic, my first radio system that had model memory. Had two model memory. It was a Flash Five Hitech set. Um, I mean, two model memory, gee, holy cow, you know, like, and you couldn't put a name in it. You could only put a number. So you had to number your airplanes. But, 
it, the equipment's got so much better and cheaper. I mean, we're selling 14 channel radios now, fully proportional, and you know, the $700, but which is to me is, for a quality radio is, is really cheap, and that's almost an entry level now. Oh, for me, 14 channels, why would you buy anything smaller? Yeah, a question for you actually just came to mind because, um, speaking of quality of gear, we've noticed sort of in recent years this development of really high torque servos still have reasonable speed as well we're talking like 50 kilo and up kind of servos now mm-hmm. you've got you've got one of those haven't you have you got a, a servo that's yeah we've got one it's almost 70 kilos we, we were developing a 12, a 12 volt range and i think this is the way you'll see it change is the problem with trying to get high torque servos uh, you can you can put the torque through them, but they, they're really power hungry. They get very very hot. The current load is incredibly high. Uh, going up in voltage will decrease the temperature, uh, keep the current load down. Uh, so you'll see a development. We've got some twelve volt servos now. Uh, the issue for me is like I always had guys going, look, you've got a fifty kilo servo. I'm going to build a three meter IMAP plane. I'm going to put one servo in the aileron, and I'm I tell them not to. The servo will will drive it, no question. But for me, it's still only holding with four screws and you're driving it through one gear train. The gear train is under so much stress where you've got two servos in there. uh, You're sharing that load over eight screws, two gear trains. It just makes sense to me. And you you don't put your equipment under undue stress that could wear it out quicker uh, or fail. Um, While you've still got 50 kilos, it takes a lot to get it to drive. And in certain circumstances, you just still use two servos, in my opinion. Yeah. Is that but, th- what about for rudder as well on, say, 100cc size planes? You, is your preference a single server or a twin servo? Uh, single. Yeah, if you, can do, if you can still build it without making it too complex, not a problem. And we've been using singles on uh, 2.6 size models for you know, 10, 15 years now, just about, you know. Um, yeah, certainly. The, the, the torque of them and the quality of the gear trains will handle uh, a 2.6 size single on each aileron elevator and uh, rudder with that question. But on two points, on three metres, you get such, depending on the aircraft, if you have a look at the krill, that rut nut's flying, for instance, Edo's old one, it's got ailerons like barn doors. They're huge. And so, you know, at low speed, it's not such a great problem. The stress isn't so great. It's at high speed where you're looking at high speed flood and there's a lot of strain on your servos. Yeah, I, know. I, I agree with you. I sort of get a bit fearful when you've got a massive 3D kind of plane with big ailerons and one servo to me. I'm like you. I get a bit worried about it. Um, yeah. But uh, there are a lot of people who've still got that that sort of fear. But you know, time will tell. Some people, some people are going, of course, are going to experiment. We'll see what happens. But um, the 12-volt thing's interesting. Is So what's the idea? Three-cell LiPo to drive that? Correct. Yeah, three-cell LiPo. Um, I mean, we've got uh, distribution hubs, which will all handle uh, 12 volt. Uh, the problem at the moment is, is developing, um, yeah, like a, a throttle servo. So at the moment, we've only got the one 12 volt servo and it's got oodles of torque. I think it's something like 68 kilos and uh, it's super fast if you want it to be. And they're all programmable, which is fantastic because you can also change um, lots of parameters in it, but you can also change it from uh, 120 degrees to 150 degrees to 180 degrees row. Uh, so it'll go horizon to horizon, which is kind of cool if you're doing really high-speed stuff like discus launch, uh, not discus launch, sorry, um, dynamic soaring, where you can, you know, some of those things will reach 500 mile an hour, uh, 800 k's, and they use the 180-degree throw to lock out the mechanism so it's not actually pushing on the servo, it's pushing dead against the arm. Um, that kind of setup's really clever, and our servos allow you to do that, but the whole 12-volt thing I think will take off 
in the next four or five years um, as more product comes online. And yeah, like I say, the current draw becomes so much easier to manage and the heat dissipation is a lot easier too to, ha- to handle. They don't get quite as hot. The, I've actually got a question here that talks about the future and you've covered some of the stuff with 12 volt, but what else would you like to see happen as far as um, model aeroplanes in the future, whether it be gear or planes or aircraft that might enhance the hobby a bit more? Oh, it's difficult. I mean, with gas aeroplanes, I mean, I had to play with an EFI uh, DA120 for a little while there and it was great, but it's got a, you know, <laughs> is the expense worth it over a carburetor? And it's difficult. Yeah, it, it, for certainly for UAVs it is. Because uh, you know you can manage your fuel so much better, and your, your fuel saving is part of your payload. And uh, but going forward, I think, yeah, I really haven't thought much about it. I think you know just easier to manage, easier to operate systems that are more kiss. You know, keep it simple, stupid, and easy to put together so that manufacturers are giving you a, a cohesive um, thing to use. You're not actually having to get this unit from someone else, this unit from someone else, and trying to make them all work. Um, yeah, we, we've certainly got to that stage now. Um, and going forward, I think one of the biggest things we'll face since COVID is actually getting a product into Australia uh, at a reasonable price. And certainly in large-scale airplanes, it'll be a little bit more difficult, I think. Yeah, I think uh, there's a lot of a lot of hobby manufacturers hurting. We, we always – it really annoys me when there's people in the hobby that think that some of these manufacturers are making a fortune out of this and they're ripping us all off. But I think you and I know that uh, – you know, there's not many um, people in the hobby industry driving around Ferraris, but uh, they do it out of love. But this this whole uh, COVID issue really is going to put make an impact on a lot of the manufacturers, especially over in China, that where their markets have sort of died off. So hopefully we'll get through this okay, which no no doubt we will. It may look a little bit different, but um, we'll still be able to buy gear and get out there. Now, before we go, mm-hmm. I ask this question to everybody. What has been your favourite plane? Oh, that had be, probably my Compact Pips S12 with the DA200 magnesium in it, and I put four exhausts in that thing, um, which took me a while to get them all engineered. But the, I, that was the kind of thing I, when I did it all, I just wish I had a clear cowl on it because it looked so cool. You know, it was just one of those things, and I loved that plane. It was, you know, it was not the best iMac plane ever flown, but as far as flying, it was heaps of fun. It was like a real pitch, like it rolled out all the time. So it wasn't ultra precise, but it was just great to fly. And it was just stunning to look at. I just loved it. It was in the Oracle scheme. It was all red with white Oracle. And it looked brilliant. I just loved it. Um, yeah, a bit sad when I sold it, unfortunately. But um, the money was cold in my hand as a man was driving away. And I still wasn't sure I should have done that. But anyway. <laughs> oh, it's, it's, like we were saying, there's always another plane to buy. Oh, exactly. You know, I, I, don't, I look back on that plane uh, very fondly. It never wore out. It didn't break it. Someone else has still got it and flying it and loving it. And... I still see pictures of it now and everyone still goes, oh, how cool is that exhaust system? You know, And yeah, it was great. I, mean, uh, I was fortunate I was working at DA at that time, so I could take lots of components home and measure them up to make sure it was all going to fit before I started cutting and shutting and doing all kinds of things to make it make it work. Yeah. Well, Richo, you are a legend in the hobby and I truly mean that. Uh, you know, As I said, you're one of those guys that whatever you say, you know that you know what you're talking about. Um in the you know you, you learnt from the master Ian Howard and you're continuing on so well done now again we've got RC what's the web address for RC Depot Australia rcdepot.com.au yeah and then Richo's Radioactive is great on Facebook as well if you want to keep in touch with some of Richo's building stuff and if you want Richo to build your plane yeah I'll just get in contact with you through the website 
through us? Yeah, through the, web, through the website or give me a phone call. Uh, you, know, you can get me on my mobile number, 0418-521-637, if I can help anyone. And I'm always here to help uh, wherever I can. Uh, I'm, I mean, I was always very fortunate that uh, I learned so much from so many other people and I'm always happy to give that information back. It's time to you get to pay back what people give to you and I'm happy to do that as well. Well, Steve Richardson, you're a gentleman and we appreciate you joining us here on the Flat Out RC podcast and for everything that you've been doing for the hobby, keep up the good work. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. Appreciate it. Thanks, Andrew. About to leave, already packing. Come with me, I'm not really asking. We'll get away to a place where we don't know. Another episode done and dusted, and thanks once again for joining me. A big thank you to Steve Richardson uh, for spending the time on the line. Hope you learnt more about what he's up to, inspired you a bit more. Don't forget RC Depot Australia is his website. If you're looking for some JR gear, jump online, RC Depot Australia. Uh, search it up. Things.com.au. Anyway, I think we got. If you listen to the podcast, you'll have heard the web address. So hope you're enjoying your time in the hobby whether you're building something whether you're planning to go out for a fly keep on doing it don't forget uh hook up with us instagram flat facebook youtube channel i want to build my youtube subscriber count up see i want to monetize it i want to see if i can make 20 bucks out of it a year need to get to a thousand subscribers uh so i'm not there yet I'm, I'm hoping to get some videos out shortly there's another um product overview video i'd like to do uh, I've, got, I've got this transmitter sitting in my office that I need to review. It's long awaited. Going to get that happening soon. Once the events start happening, once we get back to the field, I'll, every, any opportunity I'll get a video. And don't forget about the merch. Merchandise, t-shirts uh, available. Flatoutrc.com.au Flatoutrc.com.au Click on the merchandise button and take a gander and buy something. You'll look good. You'll make you a better pilot. Once again, thank you for joining me. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast, whether you listen to it on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or Spotify. Take your pick. It's free. I'm not making any money out of it. If you want to sponsor this podcast, just send me a message. Happy to take your money. Anyway, till next time, plenty more coming. We will talk to you next week. Thanks a lot for joining me.